0: from the Theology of the Body Institute. This is
1: The Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello podcast listeners. Hey everybody. We are here in the middle of the season of Lent 2020 and inspires me to think about Lent in the past because having both of us grown up Catholic, the season of Lent is just in our DNA practically. Do you have an earliest memory of a Lenten sacrifice? An
0: earliest memory of a Lenten sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I do remember, as soon as you say that, I have a flash of a memory that I can probably even pinpoint the year, fifth grade, so that would have been 1981. Yeah, 1981. Okay, okay. I think that was the first time I started taking Lent seriously. You know, it's like pretty
1: young, fifth grade. <laughs> yeah, I
0: don't think my, I guess my parents might have encouraged us, but I think I was learning in Catholic schools. You know, at this point, you're you're getting to the age where, uh, what is it? Is it age twelve that the church says you're you're actually bound be. by the fasts? Hmm. I don't remember.
1: Thirteen might be for meat, and then fasting not till maybe.
0: 18 or 19. Yeah. Well, I started early.
1: But I think, uh, you know, giving something up, that's kind of voluntary no matter what, right? Yeah.
0: So, yeah, I guess that's an important distinction. So, I I was giving up candy anyway. This was fifth grade, 1981. Oh, my
1: goodness.
0: And I decided to to go the whole time without candy. You know, there's that debate about can you have what you gave up on Sundays. You know, I
1: never heard of that when I was a kid. No? We gave it up the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So you went the whole time No, well, I went the
0: whole time except oh, okay. on one Sunday I had one Pez <laughs> <laughs> One
1: a Pez, for those of you who don't know Is that tiny little candy Not much bigger than a pill <laughs> Right,
0: right. my friend had this Pez dispenser And he's like, do you want one? Do you want one? Oh. And I was like, well, I gave it up for Lent." he said, it's Sunday, just have one oh. And I remember taking it With some measure of guilt <laughs> Wow <laughs> Here I am, uh, you know, almost forty years later, still talking about it, still in there. So, yeah, that made an impression. Oh,
1: that's funny.
0: <laughs> How about you? What when you hear the word lint? What does the yeah. what does the word even conjure up?
1: Oh, interesting. I had a beautiful experience when I was in ninth grade. That was the only year I went to Catholic school, and. I remember going to mass at school on Ash Wednesday. And I remember so vividly kneeling there in the chapel at school and having a deep feeling of wanting to be closer to God, Mm. you know, that that longing. Mm. And, you know, at the start of Lent and the kind of just a a sincerity to that. But I also certainly remember that as a kid, we, we always observed the no meat, on Fridays, even though mm-hmm. you aren't really required to. And, I, you know, uh, Fridays, my mom would pack our lunch and ask, do you want peanut butter and jelly or tuna fish for <laughs> your sandwich? Because those were our meatless options.
0: For does, our- so does tuna fish just immediately conjure up lunches on Fridays and lunch? <laughs>
1: you know, I don't know It's really weird. <laughs> my siblings like, can confirm this uh-huh. craziness. My mom used to make this tuna salad that... On Fridays in Lent, we would sometimes have cheese pizza for dinner. But to my mom, somehow, that just did not seem substantial enough for dinner. So, we would have this side of tuna salad with our cheese pizza. Which, does that go together? I don't think so. But to us, (laughs) that was like so normal, this cheese pizza with tuna salad on the side. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, we always did that. And I can remember being really careful not to give up too much as a kid, you know, one TV show, not TV, but you know, like I'll give up the Brady Bunch, or or one type of dessert, not mm-hmm. all desserts, you mm-hmm. know, but maybe I gave up cake, but not cookies, please.
0: <laughs> I have a question. Yeah, did you ever put the tuna fish on the pizza?
1: No, I did not. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> Just wondering. <laughs> I was not a food mixer as a kid. Okay, that was a lot yes, of weird I do to me. actually.
0: I do know that about
1: you. <laughs> Well, shall we go on to our listeners' questions? Okay. Here is a question from Roberta. Roberta Roberta is a great fan from Mexico, she says. Here's my question. My parents are divorced. My mom has decided to be by herself for the rest of her life. My dad has a girlfriend. I've noticed that my mom and dad both take the Eucharist, but you've compared the Eucharist with matrimony so much that I fear they're committing sin. Doesn't the Bible say that divorced couples are committing adultery? Help.
0: Bless you, Roberta. Uh, it's not easy for any offspring to go through the divorce of their parents. Um, it sounds like you are still close to both your mom and your dad. It sounds like you're still involved in their lives. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, you mentioned about... I want to comment on two things, the comparison of marriage and the Eucharist, and then you said, doesn't the Bible say that those who have... Those
1: who are divorced are committing adultery. Those who are divorced
0: are committing adultery. Okay, we have to be very, very careful here. Jesus says, if you divorce and marry another, Mm -hmm. you're committing adultery. This is a very, very important distinction. He does not say, if you divorce, you're committing adultery. But if you divorce and marry another, why? Well, the church's teaching based on these words of Christ has always been not so much that divorce is wrong. Indeed, there may be cases in which it is necessary for the protection of a spouse or children in a violent situation, for example. But the church has said, based on these words of Christ, that divorce of a valid marriage is impossible. Uh, In other words, you cannot separate what God has joined. If a man and a woman are validly married, they are truly bound as husband and wife until death. Uh, And no statement in a courthouse um, can change that fact, which is why if one is already married to someone else and attempts to marry another person, this new sexual relationship would actually be adultery against the person to whom you are validly married. Again, the distinction is very important. You're only committing adultery if you marry someone else when you are validly already married. So your mother and your father have divorced, and you said they are both receiving the Eucharist. You said your mother is not remarried, doesn't intend to remarry, but your father has a girlfriend. Let's enter into this comparison between marriage and the Eucharist. So it's right in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 32, which we reference often in this podcast, because it brings us to the heart Of the theology of the body. It is a summation, as John Paul II says, of the entire message of Scripture. And here it is For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. Powerful, beautiful. What does it mean? Christ left his father in heaven. Christ left the home of his mother on earth to give up his body for his bride so that we, the church, the bride of Christ, might become one flesh with him. Where do we become one flesh with him? In the Eucharist. In the Eucharist. This is where the bridegroom gives up his body for his bride. So the Eucharist, John Paul II says, is the very source of marital love. The Eucharist is the very font of marital love. So when we, as a married couple, when we come together in one flesh, we are meant to be loving one another as Christ loves the church. We are meant to be saying to one another, this is my body given up for you. We are meant to be entering into the holy communion of marital love. And the holy communion of marital love is a sign, a foreshadowing of the holy communion of Christ's spousal love for the church. That's the connection between marriage and the Eucharist. When we receive the Eucharist, we are pledging our fidelity to Christ, the bridegroom, just as when we receive one another as husband and wife in the marriage bed, we're pledging our fidelity to one another. If we have been unfaithful in marriage— and have not been properly reconciled to receive the Eucharist would then be a a contradiction of the truth of that Pledge of Fidelity. Mm. This is why there's a profound connection also between the sacrament of confession and the sacrament of Eucharist. There's so many layers to the analogy. For example, if a married couple had had some rift between them and they had not been properly reconciled in that rift, their sexual embrace would be a dishonest communion because Mm -hmm. it's meant to be precisely that, the expression of communion. Mm -hmm. If there's been a rupture in their communion that hasn't been reconciled, coming together would not be honest. Similarly, if there's a rupture in our communion with Christ and we come together with him in the Eucharist without being reconciled through the sacrament of confession, that coming together with Christ in the Eucharist would be a dishonest honest reality so are we being faithful in coming together in the marriage bed and are we being faithful in coming together in the eucharist these two questions are profoundly united dear roberta i would not place yourself in the role of needing to be the conscience of your mother or your father i think you know just if we're going to be had taken objective 30,000 foot view here, we can say that your mother is not committing any sexual infidelity because she's. you said she doesn't have any desire to be with another man at this point in her life. You said your father has a girlfriend, but we don't know what's going on there and, and it's not our place to to guess or surmise or judge that situation. You could, if you are concerned, you could gently... Point your father in the direction of, of learning more about the church's vision and teaching of, of marital love, of the Eucharist. You could point him in the direction of uh, the theology of the body and in the, any of the resources we have here at the Theology of the Body Institute. But again, you, you don't need to be the conscience of your mother and your father. You can plant seeds, you can hint, you can direct them here and there. I think your role as your as their daughter is to, to uh, love them where they are and in loving them where they are, if the conversation opens and allows you to point them in a certain direction to learn more, great, great. But I, I wouldn't burden yourself with whether or not they are sinning when they receive the Eucharist.
1: Yeah, I think that's wise. I don't actually have anything to add. I really appreciated all you said.
0: Okay. I hope that's helpful, Roberta. God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. Again, you know, the church's teaching here is is not like this big meanie trying to come down or be be, uh, rigid with people or harsh with people. It's an invitation to understand and enter into the true depths and riches of the communion for which we are made.
1: Our next question is an anonymous question from a wife, who says, I've been married to my husband for over 20 difficult years. We recently discovered, through both individual and couple therapy, that he most likely lives with a form of narcissistic personality disorder. Well, I have established boundaries that make it clear he's no longer permitted to abuse or threaten me or our children, I still realize that this disorder means he's most likely never going to have a true capacity for self donative love mm. for me or anyone. Mm. I intend to keep my marriage vows. Mm. But what does this mean for the reality of our physically intimate relationship? He's demonstrated time and again that he does not see me as someone to love, mm. but as someone to use. Mm. And that seems unlikely ever to change.
0: Mm. Mercy. Dear listener, bless you, bless you. Just listening to you read that question, Wendy, I I just get a little sense of the deep sorrow, the deep cry of, of her heart and the burden that she has carried. I commend you for your willingness and readiness to say you want to be faithful to your wedding vows. This is one of those cases where well, let me back up a second and say, every marriage is a, is a case in which what is at stake is salvation, right? Ma- marriage is a sacrament, and sacraments are meant for our salvation. That's the purpose of all sacraments, is to lead us to salvation. So every marriage is a sacrament of salvation. This marriage, in a particular way, highlights that the path to salvation— involves a profound renunciation, a profound suffering, a profound uh, entering into the mystery of the cross. St. John Paul II says that spouses are the constant reminder to the world of what happened on the cross. Mm. It's a profound mystery That we're invited to enter into. And every marriage, each in its own way, will by necessity, if the couples are really following where marriage leads them, marriage will by necessity take them into the heart of the cross. I was just reading the other day, it really struck me in the gospel where Jesus says, The Son of Man will suffer greatly. He will be rejected, he will be killed, and then he will be raised. And then he says, just a line or two later, "Follow me." Mm-hmm. Whoa! 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 Wait! Wait! Whoa! 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 <laughs> uh, can't following Jesus be smiles and sunshine and rose petals? It leads to sunshine and rose petals. It leads to glory. It leads to resurrection, but the path to get there, Jesus is very plain, very clear. The Son of Man will suffer greatly. The Son of Man will be rejected. The Son of Man will be killed. And then he invites us to take up our own cross and follow. Bless you. Bless you, dear wife out there who wrote this question. Yours is a particularly heavy cross, and I think you are absolutely right. Number one, let us be clear that embracing the cross here does not mean you are a doormat and you should just allow yourself to be trampled upon. From what you have written, it sounds like you have been very clear with your husband that there are boundaries, that you are not meant to be abused. And yet, as you have also stated, your husband has a a disorder. What did she call it? A, A
1: uh, narcissistic personality disorder.
0: Narcissistic personality disorder. I am not a psychologist. I cannot comment on on what that means at any uh, level of real knowledge and and uh, depth of understanding. I I would have a cursory understanding of what that means, and I can imagine the very difficult position that that puts you in. I think the question becomes, how can you show your husband in these circumstances? the love of Christ. How can you enter into the heart that Christ has for your husband in his brokenness, in this disorder that he has? What does that mean for you? There will certainly be a need for boundaries, but also an invitation as his wife to learn how to help him carry that burden. Wendy, do you have anything you want to say or or add here sure
1: absolutely you know i i can't overstate the the sense of just the difficulty of this burden and yet the sense of awe of god's mercy and grace that has you know brought this wife to a place of saying this is my situation and i'm not running away it's That's very grace. difficult. That, but is that is grace. That is grace. That is the
0: presence of Jesus in your sacrament mm-hmm. right there.
1: And I, I think there are so many things that could come against your peace of heart when you are in such yes. a, a situation. Whether it's um, comparing your marriage to other people's marriages, the incredible temptation to just indulge self-pity and, um, you know, or to be angry and all those things that are clearly natural human reactions. And yet also if we're walking with the Lord, He can help us to press through and get beyond them. I really feel like in the question of should you be sexually intimate with your husband, I think it is a case of real discernment on your part. That is, we cannot say that you have any obligation to be especially because we know that how much the Lord wants to protect that integrity of your own being that you are not to be used and abused. Whether it could be at times in your marriage that you sense you are called to be physically intimate with your husband, he would need to give you that sense of why he's calling you to that and that he's giving you that opportunity that you are accepting from him, um, to be somehow in that encounter with your husband, a source of grace and healing, whether or not you see immediate results from that, but trusting that that's what the Lord is calling you to. But there's no expectation on our parts that you should conclude that, you know, because it's such a challenging and intimate reality. And if If your discernment is telling you to be just not to enter into that, certainly that's understandable and not wrong in the sense that you are not called to be abused.
0: Yeah. The call of of marriage and specifically the marital embrace is the call to become a gift to one another Mm -hmm. and renew your marriage covenant. When someone is incapacitated in that regard, one is not obligated to submit to that kind of abuse. I'm thinking here of a, of a beautiful expression that Pope Francis used, uh, where spouses are called in these very difficult circumstances to look for the ember beneath the ash. Mm. I think it's a beautiful image that there is goodness in your husband. You, you married this man because you sensed that goodness. Mm-hmm. And that, that goodness is still in there, that ember, that little glowing ember of, of the image of God, of his fundamental goodness. It may be buried underneath layers and layers of, of ash, but it's in there. And you have, as his wife, you've been given a grace through your sacrament To see that, to recognize that, and I just as I say it, I have this little image of you you blowing your love into that ember so that it can become, God willing, a a flame, a -hmm. flame. Love is healing. Your spousal love for your husband is redemptive for his heart. And he is worth that love. This is the mystery of the human person, that that every human person is worthy of love. Uh, Every human person is worthy of being sacrificed for. Again, delicate issues like this call for great discernment, as you're saying, Wendy. But the miracles can happen in the midst of very, very difficult circumstances. Mm Amen. Amen. Bless you, bless you, bless you, dear wife. Please know you will be in our continual prayers. Maybe, Wendy, would you lead us in a prayer for her and her husband right now? Absolutely.
1: Lord, I come before you with this couple whose stories you know perfectly. You know so much more than we can ever hope to understand about Each of their lives, you know their struggles, you know their sufferings. You know the incredible challenges that they've already made it through in their marriage, and you've been present with them in their walk all this time. We thank you, Lord. Thank Thank you. you. Lord. Lord, we ask that even in a situation that seems hopeless, that hope would be kept alive. Lord, I ask that you would allow this husband, to experience the grace to love others in an unselfish way, starting with his wife and children. Lord, we pray knowing that that would be an absolute miracle, Yes, Lord. but that you are a miracle worker. And we pray for this wife who has courageously walked uh, such a difficult journey that her heart would be safe in your heart lord Mm. that she would be healed of wounds and that she would be strengthened and protected and that you would give her the gift of wisdom and that she would be able to find ways to love as you love which is not because of worthiness but because you see the true dignity and possibility of every human person. So we we place their marriage and all people who are suffering in similar, very discouraging circumstances that your Holy Spirit would inspire and encourage them that they would be protected from the lies of the evil one and be able to one day, Lord, on the other side in heaven, look back and see your hand, the work that you accomplished through this um, challenging path.
0: Amen. Amen. Thanks, love.
1: Do we have an- another question yeah. here? Okay. Uh, this is an anonymous question. The questioner says, I'm so grateful for your podcast. It has been especially helpful and has yielded a fuller perspective to have You on the show, Wendy. Oh, thank you.
0: (laughs) Uh, I couldn't agree more.
1: Um, The question is, I grew up in a Protestant household and church and was taught that if a man cheats on his wife because she's not available enough for him sexually, then it is her fault that he cheated.
0: What Mm. I've read of
1: Theology of the Body has helped me untwist this a bit, but I'm curious if you could go deeper into why this is wrong and how does this idea come about?
0: Thank you, dear anonymous writer of that question. Where does this idea come from? I think it goes the whole way back to Genesis and the fall, and immediately the inclination of Adam after his fall is to blame the woman. It's the woman you put here with me. It's her fault. Mm. I, I have re- I don't want to laugh. It's not funny. Um, but I do. I'm laughing because I, I recognize this tendency in myself. There are, <laughs> there are times. I'm getting when, nervous uh, here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are times where there, I see this inclination in me, Wendy, <laughs> to say it's your fault. It's for, the woman. For, yes, for for something. That might even be quite clearly my own fault, but I don't want to take responsibility for it. I don't want to look at my own responsibility. I want to pass the buck, and you are the one who's closest to me, so it must be your fault. (laughs) There is this tendency in men, uh, it cannot be denied, it doesn't exonerate women in all of their actions. That's another question, but it is true that men have a tendency to blame women for their own faults for the things that are their own responsibility this particular issue the idea that a man's infidelity is caused by his wife's inaccessibility could there be some shred of some element of truth in this could could i imagine a situation in which a woman is spiteful and vengeful and withholds physical intimacy in her marriage out of spite, and the man is so weak in his own constitution, he's craving for affection, and someone at the office gives him a look, and one thing leads to another, and had the wife not been so harsh in a given circumstance that that infidelity might not have happened. Yeah, I could imagine that scenario. But even there, even in that scenario, I don't care if the the woman is absolutely cold. I mean, I do care. She's not supposed to be cold. She's not supposed to be vengeful and spiteful. But, but even if she is, this is my point, guys, we have a vow we have made. We have a moral obligation to learn how to be faithful even if our wives are terribly unfaithful or or vengeful or spiteful or whatever the case may be uh, we can never we can never say it is your fault that i did such and such we must take our own moral responsibility for our own behaviors and yes then taking responsibility then looking more objectively at things perhaps we can hopefully grow in our relationship and learn how to love one another but oh my gosh i i know i'm rambling at this point but wendy what are your what are your thoughts here uh,
1: i think that that whole argument has a rather surfacy look at the experience of our sexuality it's looking as if it's kind of an appetite and your your wife is the one that can legitimately fulfill that appetite and if she's not, you know, well, that's her fault. I still have this appetite. It's very not looking deeply. It's a it's a very easy out, you know. And it maybe is tempting as a man to kind of warn your wife or even for women, you know, to communicate, now you don't want your husband to yeah. stray. Yeah. You'd better yeah. be sure he's happy in the bedroom and yeah. kind of playing on fears and selfishness instead of, the gift that we have in Theology of the Body of recognizing the communication of our deep selves that's going on in our sexual union and the empowering experience of knowing your vows that you are expressing to one another. So, I guess I see the whole scenario as kind of a setup to um, just... Keep your marriage from being the deep thing that it's called to be, to put in these kind of notions of our sexual relationship that are just not in keeping with the wisdom and depth that's available.
0: You're reminding me, Wendy, with your wisdom and depth here that you're bringing to the question of something that John Paul II said. And I I have my study guide handy right here from my TOB1 class where I quote him. He says this, The very manner in which we conceive of marriage and the relationship of the sexes in general must be from the start to the greatest extent possible, freed from purely impulse-oriented this is a mouthful here. I'll okay. say it as he said it, All and then right. we'll unpack it. Go for it. Our, our understanding of marriage and the relationship of the sexes in general must be from the start, to the greatest extent possible, freed from purely impulse-oriented, naturalistic presuppositions, and shaped personalistically.
1: Okay, you know what? I think <laughs> I get most of it. Shaped
0: but this personalistically. Is this is what you're talking about. This is exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. That this, this question comes from what John Paul II calls here an impulse-oriented naturalistic presupposition. Meaning, we have this idea of sex, as you said, as merely this itch that we need to scratch. And if you don't scratch my itch, I still need it to be scratched. So I'm going elsewhere to get it scratched. So John Paul II says, this is basically you're treating the human being as an animal. Mm. Right, You have a cons- concept of yourself as an animal with certain instinctual needs. The opposite would be to shape your view personalistically, which means you're not merely an animal, you're a person. Mm-hmm. And what distinguishes persons from mere animals is this thing we call freedom. Yeah. Freedom. John Paul II goes on to say, In the impulse-oriented view... There seems to be a tendency to limit the possibility of virtue and magnify the necessity of sin in the sexual sphere.
1: Haven't we all experienced that? We can say it to ourselves. We've encountered others who've said that, you know, I can't help it. I need this. Yes, I
0: need this. Right. Personalism, understanding ourselves as persons and viewing sexuality through the dignity of what it means to be a person he says, this has an emphasis on self-determination that would entail the opposite tendency. In other words, you're not an animal right. who can't control yourself. And so you can learn through your freedom what he calls the possibility of virtue based on self-mastery.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: So what is really, I would say, what's really underneath all of this in the idea that it's the woman's fault that I cheated because... I didn't get what I wanted from you. What's really underneath this is is an excuse for not gaining mastery of your own sexual desires. Mm -hmm. It's a deep question, a very important question we all have to ask ourselves. Am I master of my sexual desires or are my sexual desires master of me? I don't see how... Anybody could ever conclude it's it's somebody else's fault unless you are unwilling to look at your own lack of self-mastery. Mm-hmm. We are called to self-mastery. Now, it, as the Catechism says, self-mastery is a long and exacting work. You can never conclude that you've acquired it once and for all. It demands renewed effort at every stage of life, the Catechism says. It's like, it's like the discipline required of learning to be a, a concert pianist. It will take that much work. It will take that much effort to learn really and truly how to love. But is it worth it? Heck yeah, it is worth it because you can learn how to make beautiful, beautiful music if we commit ourselves to that journey of discipline and sacrifice in learning to gain self-mastery. So... I'm aware, certainly, there are people out there listening to this podcast, and you might be thinking to yourself, that's kind of pie in the sky, that doesn't really correspond to the way people experience married life, that's so rare, or you might just think this is some ideal uh, that nobody can really attain. And I want to say, you are worth it, and you should go for it. And you should believe that you are worth it. And if you're in a relationship where the other person doesn't believe this, yes, there's a heavy cross to carry there. But even there, real love can break through and real love can convert. Real love can work miracles. As we were saying earlier, there are, there are times in married life if we are really following the Lord we're really learning to love as he loves, that means there will be times when we feel the crown of thorns getting pressed in. We feel the nails going through the hands. We feel the sword getting thrust into the side. Uh, When we experience these things, these trials, these difficulties, these burdens, these obstacles, oftentimes couples say, well, I, I didn't bargain for that. Well, we can all enter marriage with a certain, I hope we won't have to go through this or that, But what we're pledging at the altar, and notice where we are, we're at the altar. We're at an altar of sacrifice. We're saying we want to learn how to love uh, as Jesus loved. That's the commitment that marriage is, and this is what it calls us to. And the, the reward for those who embrace those trials, those sacrifices, those disciplines that are required, the reward is nothing short of the freedom for which Christ has set us free. And that is the freedom of real love. Uh, This is why the Catechism says, uh, and uh, I'll I'll close with this thought, chastity, that that self-mastery that is required that we are talking about. The Catechism says chastity is a promise of immortality. So profound. Those who commit to this journey of learning what it means to love and it will involve very painful purifications. But those who commit to the journey, they'll live forever. Mm. They'll live forever. That's what sexual union is meant to be saying. We're meant to be saying to one another, pledging to one another, we're going to live forever. We're going we're to we're we're enter into divine love. This union we now know is meant to be just a little glimmer of the heavenly reality, of the love and union that lasts forever. We're made for that. We yearn for that. Let's have the courage to go for it. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Let's keep that joy set before us. If we don't keep that joy set before us, we have no motivation for going right. through those trials or sufferings. And when we face those trials and sufferings, if we don't have the joy set before us, we'll just make excuses and say, oh, it's her fault, or it's his fault, or if, I, if it, such and such, it's their fault. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, Lord. Give us a vision of the joy that is set before us mm. <laughs> to the extent that we can see the cross that you carried, the wounds that you bore, the suffering you endured is all worth it for the glory to which it led. Give us that motivation, Lord. Give us a sense, a taste of that joy and ecstasy so that we might be willing to go through the agony to get there. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it.
1: It's worth it.
0: Amen. That's what makes life worth living, learning to love. And yeah, man, purifications are not fun. And I I whine just like anybody whines about going through those fires of purification. But it's worth it because life is a gift. And you are a gift, an unrepeatable, indispensable, irreplaceable gift of life and love.
1: Become what you are.
0: Amen. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes.